Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Piki mai, kake mai, and welcome. From Radio New Zealand National, here's our changing world. The early conservationist Richard Henry pioneered the translocation of rare birds over a century ago, when he moved hundreds of kiwi and kakapo to Resolution Island in Fiordland. In the 1960s, the late Don Merton and the Wildlife Service borrowed this technique to use with saddlebacks, and since then there have been hundreds of reintroductions of everything from giant weta to tuatara and robins to kakapo. Massey University's Doug Armstrong and PhD student Kate Richardson are two of the authors of a recent book called Advances in Reintroduction Biology of Australian and New Zealand Fauna. And Alison catches up with them to hear about moving species. There's really two reasons for moving animals around. One is because you're concerned about the species itself. So it's got down to very low numbers of one population. The other big reason is for ecological restoration reasons. So you might have a sanctuary that you think we want to restore this to the way it was and a big part of that is bringing back the species because if you're missing any of the species and some are more important than others of course but uh, any species is going to have some role in the system so if you want to restore it you want to bring back those species so what we really try to want to avoid though is doing this in a I suppose a kind of a thoughtless way where you just think oh we want to save this species or we want to restore this system and don't really consider why it's actually absent and what the species actually needs to, to bring it back uh, successfully. Um, so that makes the difference between good reintroductions and bad reintroductions. Bad reintroductions, there are failures? Oh yes. If you look internationally in the past, uh, again the, the figures are difficult, but we're probably talking about 20% success rate, something like that. Um, That's actually surprisingly low, because we only hear about the good news. Yes, you only hear about the good news. I mean, Picking a figure like that is difficult because it depends very much on the sorts of species and the circumstance. If you look at the history, for example, of bird reintroductions in New Zealand, which by international standards it's very successful, it's actually dominated by a very large number of attempts to reintroduce weka and brown teal back to the mainland. And until recently, all of those were unsuccessful. If you step back and look at why they're unsuccessful, what are some of the things that are common amongst all the failures? Mm. Well, in New Zealand, the big one is predation by exotic mammals. The realisation, I suppose, by probably the 50s, 60s in New Zealand about just how important those species were led to a big increase in success in the 80s and 90s. What's happened in recent times is then sort of identifying some other issues associated with vegetation structure and food and all sorts of things that are starting to limit some reintroductions as well as just the predation. Have we, in a sense, done most of the easy reintroductions? So we've had offshore islands that mm. Are, mm. were either naturally predator-free or we've made predator-free, and you can move birds mm. there in particular and know that they're in a safe environment. We've got a few fenced sanctuaries mm. where they've managed to remove all the predators as well. Those are, in a way, the easy ones. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Uh, sort of think of that as the low-hanging fruit. Uh, and one of the reasons that's important is because people often expect, okay, okay, you're doing all this 
science of reintroduction biology is that means you're improving and we're going to expect success rates to increase over time. Uh, but of course, if people do the, the easy things first and then over time it just leaves the really challenging cases left, it doesn't mean we necessarily expect to increase over time. So we might actually improve our knowledge a lot and then take on the really challenging things, but our success rate might actually go down and we don't uh, need to feel negative about that. Now you've done some work with robins mm. in the central North Island. Can you tell me about that work? Because that was about introducing birds not to a fence sanctuary but just to some remnant forests. Mm. Yeah, I've done all sorts of things with robins. And uh, if you go outside the islands, robins have been reintroduced everywhere because everybody loves robins and they're, they're easy to handle, they're easy to catch, they're a really good indicator species. So there have been lots of them, uh, robin reintroductions to sanctuaries, but um, yeah, the stuff you were talking about is, is a little bit different because it's extreme in scale. And we were talking about bringing robins back to little just remnants on, on private land uh, between 5 to, to 20 hectares in size. We're working about on a 10-kilometre by 10-kilometre landscape. Okay, so within that landscape, about 35% of the forest uh, with remnants or, or patches or fragments or whatever you want to call them had robins in them. And so there were a bunch of the unoccupied ones within that landscape that were didn't have any robins turn up for about three years or so. Um, so then we, at one point we started to do an experiment over a few years and bring them back into some of those fragments. And what happened? A few things happened. It was obvious that isolation was an issue because because some of them were just surrounded by paddocks, which robins just weren't happy to cross. But what we really learned from the reintroductions is that you could put animals back into places that, based on all the prior indicators, looked quite good. The robins, we got them in there. They they bred, and they bred actually bred quite as well, but their survival wasn't quite as good. So was it there wasn't enough food, or were predation rates too high? That subtle variation among the fragments we, we don't understand to this day. Uh, the, the predator indicators don't explain it. Any of the sort of things we measured about the vegetation don't really explain it either. One of the things that struck me reading the book is we hear a lot about ecological connectivity and how it's good to create corridors and join up isolated fragments of forest, but the impression I got from the book, from examples, because of that dispersal thing, is that's not necessarily so. You might actually be better off to have a standalone piece of forest because then the birds are going to stay there. Yeah, that, that's right. It depends on the um, species that you're talking about. So for flightless birds that, that can't leave, um, the connectivity is not an issue. Um, if you're talking about species that are flighted and can disperse considerable distances from the release site, then connectivity can actually be quite a bad thing. So you'll get an interaction between those two, two factors. One of the other examples given in the book is robins at Wenderholm. Can you just talk me through that? Yeah, that's right. So that was a um, box text that was contributed by Tim Lovegrove from the Auckland Council. Robins were released to Wenderholm back in the 1990s um, and initially seemed to do really well. They established at the site um, and there was breeding and they had similar levels of productivity to other sites with robins. Um, but what they found over time was that there was no recruitment of juvenile robins into the population. So the population sort of levelled off at pretty low numbers of um, breeding pairs Juveniles were known to disperse out into the surrounding area into private land where there was very little or no predator control. So after about, I think, 14 years, the population, there's actually no robins left at Wenderholm. What about genetics and all of this? We definitely want to worry about genetics because what, what can happen is if you have a very 
smallish population for quite a long time. What will happen with populations, they tend to lose genetic variation over time, and that can eventually become a problem. It's very unpredictable how much of a problem it becomes. So where we have our things like our island populations, where you know, very safe and it looks like species are doing very well, but they're very isolated. I think, yeah, that's one of the things that we need to take a bit of a longer-term view on is thinking about, well, how are those populations going to be in 100 years or 200 years and so forth, given that they look safer. On the other side of the coin, I think sometimes people jump, jump the gun a little bit and they start thinking about considerations about the long-term genetics of populations when they don't have, really have any idea even when the population is going to survive the next year or the next two years or the next five years and we might need to really focus on that in the short term. Is it straightforward to bring new genetic stock into a population or not necessarily? This is kind of new ground and now it, it sometimes it's not straightforward and the examples I can I can think of is uh, this has been done with hihi the stitch beards and the example I think of is Tiritiri Matangi Island which is our sort of our main Hihi farm we use now for reintroducing all the other populations, and it is a, what we call a bottleneck population. So it actually descended from very few females. So the obvious solution to that is to bring some some birds back from from Little Barrier, which was the remnant population, which was larger. But then you dump those into a population that's fairly large, and it's you know full of bellbirds, the island and Tui as well, and something. So finding a foothold for these for these valuable animals with new genetic stock uh, can be quite difficult. Um, so you can actually end up basically sending animals kind of to their deaths by putting them in very difficult situations rather than it actually being useful. So there's clearly a lot of enthusiasm out there from things like community groups, but what are you hoping this book will actually do? Yeah, I think just from a management perspective, getting people to, to stop and think about what, what they're wanting to achieve with translocations and also what is realistic to achieve with translocations. So, you know, like you say, there's a lot of enthusiasm. People are really keen to, especially with community groups that have invested a huge amount and achieved a huge amount, to continue with translocations and to always be looking towards the next species. But it's really important to, to think about it from a long-term point of view and in terms of what's actually possible to achieve from the site and what also needs to change um, in terms of predator control, not just within the site or eradicating predators from the site, but also what you need to look at within the surrounding landscape as well. It isn't just a matter of doing it, then seeing what happens, and then coming up with a conclusion, because depending on the species, particularly the species, but the circumstances, in some cases, uh, for example, we might have really good reason to believe that a species species will need to have a good number in order to be successful. So if you have a very small number of them there, they won't be able to feed properly or defend themselves and so forth, and, and therefore we might have good reason to believe that we need more. But there might be other cases where there's no reason to expect that, and just thinking, oh, if we have larger numbers, it's somehow going to magically become successful, uh, is going to be a pipe dream. So I think we really need to keep in mind sort of the, the theory of what we're doing and not just sort of observe and then react to it. Some of the things that need to be considered in translocations, you know, are you going to move juveniles, are you going to move adults? Mm. If things hang around in family groups, you need to move the family groups. Mm. Mm. You do need to know quite a lot about the biology of the species you're moving. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in many cases that's fairly straightforward, but there have been some cases where it's remarkably unstraightforward as well. Um, 
My favourite one is actually an, an international example rather than an Australasian one, which is the the large blue butterfly in um, in England, which actually became extinct, and it was an agricultural land and. And people thought, of course, oh, we'll just modify the landscape less and leave reserves and so forth. But it actually didn't help these butterflies at all. And the whole story ended up being com remarkably complex because there was this symbiotic relationship with an ant species. And the ant species actually had to take the, the larvae of the caterpillars back to their nests. And that's what they relied on. But it was like there's four related species of, of ants. And only one of them actually cared for the caterpillars in the right way. And this one species of ant only exists when when the the grass or the turf is at a certain height, which then depends on the grazing regime. So working out the whole biology of this this species and the ant that it depended on, and then now that depended on the management, uh, it really took quite a lot of research. In the end, was it was very successful, and there, there's now the several large blue populations back in back in Britain. So that that's an extreme case when it's not, where it's not just intuitively obvious where what the species needs. In your example of the blue butterfly, I think too, we tend to do so many translocations here in New Zealand, we just tend to look at other New Zealand examples, but we could learn a lot by looking at what's been happening in Australia, what's been happening in other countries as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and turning that around the other way, just because there are, you know, thinking, thinking of the contribution of the book, because we do so many reintroductions in New Zealand and Australia, because there's reasons for doing that people around the world are very interested in what we're doing here because in many cases they might you know somewhere like japan they're doing a thing like the japanese ibis reintroduction and, and really that's the only reintroduction program in the country so they're very interested in learning from a from a country that does hundreds of these things yeah. and that was doug armstrong and you also heard from kate richardson both at massey university and you'll find the link to the book we were discussing on our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash Our Changing World. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.